Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and you're listening to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Sam Williams about his ideas on the sufficiency of Scripture as it applies to biblical counseling. Dr. Williams serves as both a professor of counseling at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and as a biblical counselor with over 40 years of experience in the field of counseling and psychology. Now, uh, be sure to tune in to our other episode with Dr. Williams in which we discussed missionary and pastor resilience. Sam, thank you for joining us today. It's good to be here, buddy. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, I cannot think of uh, a field or arena in which this is not applicable. In fact, I am uh, presenting a paper on the sufficiency of Scripture and the natural sciences. Um, one can, uh, I've, I've attended conferences on the sufficiency of Scripture where they talked about how it applies uh, to, uh, to, to the missiological enterprise, uh, sufficiency of Scripture and biblical criticism. One can just think of all of the various ways in, uh, in areas in which uh, sufficiency of Scripture uh, is such an important concept. And yet, I think that uh, evangelicals have struggled to come to a consensus by what we do and do not mean right. by sufficiency of Scripture. So before we get into all of that, let's step back just a little bit. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what drew you into the field of counseling and, and how you started out as a psychologist and then you moved over into the field of biblical counseling. Can you tell us a little bit, a bit sure, about your journey? Sure. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting because the field of uh, counseling and clinical psychology, which is what my master's and PhD degrees are in, um, really was my replacement for the Christian faith. I grew up in a wonderful Christian home in really good uh, kind of middle-of-the-road uh, Baptist churches in Phoenix, Arizona. And... Uh, but somehow um, the gospel didn't add up, and the more I got into my later teenage years and early adulthood, I just thought this doesn't work. It might not even be true, and so I dumped it and abandoned the Christian faith, and my uh, subsequent savior really was philosophy and then clinical psychology. I really thought this is where I will find meaning happiness and really what I'm looking for in life. So I went into counseling psychology as a replacement for the faith. Um, after uh, oh, seven, eight, nine years in that world, uh, mostly in terms of my initial internships and my training and things like that, I began really to see that um, Where were you at, at this time? Where did you do your education? So I did my undergraduate work at University of Arizona, Tucson, and then my master's and PhD work in clinical psychology at the California School of Professional Psychology, which is now a subset of USIU, United States International University, and Alliant University in San Diego. Okay. So that's where I did my studies, um, completely secular school. 
Uh, but once I got on the other side of that, soon after I completed my dissertation, my PhD, I got saved. And that really was a result of seeing that while clinical psychology counseling had some really good uh, mechanics and methods, it didn't deliver uh, the meaning and the value and the sense of purpose that I really was looking for. And I was looking uh, for that, didn't find it there, and then really the Lord captivated me. And um, so, uh, and then went through a journey where I was trying to sort out. Initially, I thought, well, um, when I walk into my office as a psychologist, uh, that is a professional activity, and I leave my faith outside the door. Well, that didn't work very well. Uh, as I uh, worked with people, uh, certainly developed lots of concern and care for them, I could see very clearly that my belief, my faith in Christ and the scriptures, the importance of the church, um, was something that many of these folks were in need of. So I began a journey where I no longer omitted my faith from my practice, but I thought I need to find a way to put these things together. So I went through a period of trying to integrate. In fact, that's a term. That's one way to understand the interface between Christianity and counseling or psychology is is by means of integration. Unfortunately, that is very uh, widely and often not very well defined. And so kind of got frustrated with the integration project because there was really no regnant um, or consensual methodology by which I could conjoin my faith and my um, clinical psychology methods and practices. And then a friend of mine, fellow Sunday school teacher in my church, gave me uh, Millard Erickson's uh, Systematic Theology textbook, the Christian Theology textbook. The Green Monster. The Green Monster was given to me. I had never read a theology textbook in my whole life. I grew up in the church, knew all the Bible bits and data, but they had no conceptual coherence for me. I had lots of Bible bits. I knew all the Bible bits, uh, but I had no coherent conceptual system to put those together. Well, systematic theology provided that for me, and I, and I loved it. I was reading it, and I thought, my Lord, okay, this is all really making sense to me. All these Bible bits now. You know, have as a, a systematic theologian, you're warming my heart. I know, I know. <laughs> and. Uh, so, uh, and as I read through, especially the doctrine of humanity, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of, of uh, salvation and sanctification, uh, I thought this is so relevant to my understanding of people and their problems and what the most important types of change would look like. And it just mapped on the other thing that happened at that time. So I, I encountered systematic theology and then the other thing that really impacted me was uh, running into uh, David Pallison, who was one of the uh, primary figures, God rest his soul, he died a little over a year ago, published, he was the editor for the Journal of Biblical, Journal of Biblical Counseling. And, uh, but anyway, we met, I had read an article of his, uh, we began a relationship where we started talking, and I asked him uh, about a thousand questions, either by text or email or phone calls or in person sometimes. And uh, over time, I began to see that there's a biblical approach uh, 
to understanding people's problems and how to help them change. And uh, so the combination of systematic theology and biblical counseling was really revelational to me. It really was transformative. And so it really changed my perspective. So, so would you, wouldn't you say that at the time that you're making this theological journey, I mean, you made a spiritual journey back to Christ in which right. you were saved, and now you're making a theological journey uh, as you, you examine your, your vocation uh, in the light of Scripture. Wouldn't it be safe to say that at the same time, the field of Christian psychology and counseling was undergoing a similar journey in mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. What, you, what you referred to as the integrationist approach mm-hmm. many times, mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. heavy it was heavy on on the psychology aspect, very light on uh, right. the true integrating of or put placing all things under the lordship of Christ. Right. There was a I don't know if revolution would be too strong a word, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, would you talk a little bit about what was going on in in the, in sure. the field? Sure. Yeah, integration came about in the mid 20th century in the in the 50s. Uh, the Naramore brothers, Clyde and Bruce Naramore, were two of the key figures that really kind of got that on the. I map. used to listen to them on the radio every day. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. As a young so, Christian. and then you know some other really important and and helpful. I I think these folks made some some good contributions to the world of Christian counseling, and then other helpful folks came along, such as Gary Collins, James Dobson, Larry Crabb. And so we saw a burgeoning of kind of this integrated, and it was evangelicals, um, but that were also mental health professionals. And this integration model or movement really picked up a lot in the 70s and 80s. Uh, Also, uh, in 1970, Jay Adams dropped the A-bomb, the book Competent to Counsel, kind of into the evangelical Christian counseling playground and, and caused a lot of uh, controversy and basically, Dr. Adams contended that you've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. That yes, you're Christians and you really do care for people and you want to help, but you've abandoned um, your evangelical birthright for a mess of psychological. So, politics. so the attempt to integrate ended up simply being uh, a compromise that diluted the gospel truth. Would that be Adams's uh, f- accusation? I, that was Adams's accusation, and I would say to some extent that's true. I, I do think that there are weaker and stronger integrationists. The dilemma for many is that they have master's or doctoral level degrees in counseling or psychology, but they have Sunday school degrees in Bible and theology, just like mine. Mm -hmm. And uh, on the other hand, there are some stronger integrationists that really do take the integration task very seriously. And typically they are trained in Bible and theology. They have seminary degrees. And they can do a much better job at actually integrating. And I do think that there's a true integration that actually is consistent with biblical counseling, at least the more progressive arm of biblical counseling. So this brings us now to the proper way to approach a a vocation such as psychology and counseling and the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Uh, The Bible is the Word of God. Uh, you and I uh, affirm the Baptist faith and message and that we affirm that uh, the inerrancy of Scripture, its inspiration, uh, therefore it is sufficient 
to, to in, in every area that it addresses. I often say to my students that it's easy to be a fundamentalist and it's easy to be a liberal, but it's difficult to be an evangelical. And I uh, use uh, Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminaries, metaphor of theological triage in which, um, you know, a triage in, uh, as, uh, in medicine is determining what's more serious and what's less serious. And uh, his theological triage has three levels, first order items in which these are matter, matters of salvation. To abandon this is to abandon the faith, and therefore they're non-negotiable. Uh, then at the third level is those things that are, I mean, there are no insignificant doctrines in the Bible, but they, they are uh, of a level in which one should be able to operate uh, with brothers and sisters in the same local church. Uh, and, you know, whether one, how many points of Calvinism does one hold to, or whether you're, you're pre-mill, post-mill, or if you are pre-mill, are you pre-trib, post-trib? These are, these are things that we can have a, a great discussion uh, over coffee, but we're certainly not going to start a new denomination over it, or at least let's hope not. Uh, and then there are those second-order items that are in between that uh, they don't rise to the level of being salvific, but they are really serious. And those second-order items, it could be that, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of brothers and sisters that I, I really love them as dear Christian uh, brethren, but I realize I'm probably not going to be able to plant a church with them because we, we have some serious disagreements about the, the meaning of baptism and sure. meaning of church membership. Sure. And so uh, we, we, we pray for one another and we're happy with one another, but we realize we've got a second order item that we disagree about. So, so that triage, first order, second order, third order, we really are talking about that now uh, whenever we uh, come to the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture where we try to figure out just how serious some of these things are and then to just broaden the conversation a little bit more, uh, we really are talking about how do we apply Scripture to a world that is upheld by God's common grace. And so we're talking about the doctrine of common grace and the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture. Mm -hmm. how, how then do I apply uh, the Bible to the learning that we see uh, in a non-Christian you know, you think you think about all of the various uh, experts in a particular field who they're starting from a materialistic worldview or a non-Christian worldview. They certainly have some of their conclusions. In fact, many of their conclusions we we certainly would not embrace. So we don't embrace their starting point. We don't embrace their conclusions. But the actual data, the particular information that they studied, you find there's a lot of good there. Sure. Sure. So sure. how sure. then how then does one apply the doctrine of sufficiency of scripture to the vocation and practice of counseling? In other yeah. words, sure. you sure. are you were in the, the field of psychology in which right. Right. the vast majority are not right. Christians and some right. of them were had had worldviews that were antithetical to the Christian faith. Right. right. What do you do? Right. How do you approach right. that? Right. Yeah, well I, I think that scripture gives us a kind of lens, you know, Calvin called the spectacles of Scripture, a paradigmatic lens through which we can understand all things. 
Uh, obviously, that requires some study of Scripture and, and systematic theology. And biblical theology can be very helpful in providing for us conceptual lenses by which then we interpret whatever. For me, I'm trying to interpret and understand people and their problems and how to help them change, uh, trying to help, trying to understand uh, depression or panic attacks or marital problems or whatever it is. But, but Scripture gives me a paradigmatic lens so that I understand that God is, God has spoken, he is the one, we are made in his image and likeness, we're made by him and like him and for him. So I start out the gates as a Christian psychologist or a biblical I start with a very specific understanding of who we, who we are and why we're here and where we're all to be headed. So scripture makes a huge difference there. Um, if you read Freud or Skinner or Rogers or, you know, Stephen Hayes or Aaron Beck, any of the great psychologists, um, they're not going to be starting with the same perspective in terms of who we are and where we came from and why we're here and what it's all about. So, so most fundamentally, Scripture gives me a, a philosophy of life, a worldview. Second, it gives me also a basic understanding of what's wrong with us. Uh, the fall, the doctrine of sin, we are all born broken. We were born to worship, and yet we're also born broken. And so that gives me a fundamental understanding of what on earth is wrong with us. So we, incur we are incurable worshipers, but this becomes incurably, we're incurable idolaters. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and, and, and then also it gives us um, the hope of the gospel that Christ came to save us, rescue us uh, from our sins, from the effects of the sins of others upon us, and even someday the effects of sin upon my body. Our bodies will be redeemed as well. So the redemption that we have in Christ is, uh, Eric Johnson said that the incarnation resurrection of Christ is the single most psychotherapeutic event to have ever occurred on planet earth mm. and I think that really captures it well so uh, I have then in the scriptures a paradigm all the basic themes and tra trajectories that then give me they, they function as my compass in how I work with people but also as my compass in with respect to um, how I interact with, um, say, some of the third wave behavioral methods, which I have a particular interest in. Uh, and, uh, but how I interact with those is completely uh, contingent upon my worldview, these fundamental trajectories and themes that I just mentioned. And they then provide for me a lens through which I read Stephen Hayes or, you know, Kelly Wilson. Uh, two of the writers that I like in the world of, of uh, third wave act, third wave behavioral methodologies. And um, through them, then I can decide what will I uh, embrace in what I read from Stephen Hayes and Kelly Wilson, uh, what will I oppose, and what might be able to be redeemed. And so Tim Keller helpfully provides these three um uh, kind of uh, grids through which we can understand how we interact with the secular world. 
So there are some parts of it because of God's common grace, we can we can we can buy into carte block. We can embrace it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are other things that have to be worked with and redeemed, and there are other things that we'll just outright oppose. And, and knowing which one is which uh, is something that requires first. Uh, it has to be done, I think, under the authority of Scripture, right? Uh, with Scripture informing and and judging all of our conclusions. And here's where the community of faith uh, comes in, because I am not an infallible interpreter of Scripture. That's right. And so, right. Yeah. so, yeah. so there there is this dialogue, and and let's face it, sometimes that dialogue sounds an awful lot like an argument. Right. Uh, because right. I right. think uh, I think it's John Peckham uh, who wrote his book on canonical theology about the sufficiency of Scripture, and he said uh, the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture is relatively easy to affirm in the abstract. It's much more difficult yeah. to apply yeah. in yeah. the particular. Yeah. Yeah. And and this I think that um, yeah. uh, the area of of counseling may be one of those arenas in which. Right. It's been particularly difficult. Yeah. This is an area where there really has, we've kind of had, on the one hand, we've had the integrationists waving the banner of all truth is God's truth, with which, which of course is true. Yeah, yeah. And on the it was other right hand, when Augustine said it, it's the, still right today. Right. And then on the other hand, um, some of the biblical counselors, um, the flag that they, the banner they would be flying and waving would be, Scripture is sufficient for counseling. Yeah, but are they arguing for sola scriptura? Are they inadvertently arguing for scriptura nuda? Well, I think that's really where the rub lies, uh, is how do we define the sufficiency of Scripture? Well, how do we define sufficiency of well, Scripture? Well, you know, um, I, I am not a theologian, as you are, my dear friend, um, but I have done a lot of reading in this area because it's been so controversial. And fundamentally, as I understand some of the primary systematic theologians, probably John Frame, Wayne Grudem, who I've read most, um, this scripture is sufficient insofar as that it contains all the divine words, all the special revelation God has intended to give us about anything. So as John Frame says, it's just as sufficient for plumbing as it is for pneumatology. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing that, uh, you know, some some disciplines, it's fairly easy to, to realize that uh, we're not claiming that the Bible is exhaustive in its information to us in, in, in any right. particular arena. Um, my undergraduate degree is in mathematics. Uh, I, I don't think it's a good idea to, to teach a course on biblical math. You know that that okay. Yeah, you yeah, know, and yeah. from it, I'm going to be able to right, derive right, right. the fundamental theorem of calculus, our our differential equations. What I can say is that the Bible provides us a coherent worldview mm-hmm. in which God, who is truth, demonstrates uh, His faithfulness by giving us a world in which it is consistent. And that I am created in in His image, so I'm able to think yeah, His thoughts yeah, after yeah, Him. Yeah. And when we get done abstracting those things, voila, we have math. Numbers and math make sense. Yeah. In that yeah. world. Why yeah. is it that? Yeah. So the the question in the field of mathematics is is why does it work? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the great uh, philosophical question. Mm-hmm. Why does something so abstract uh, actually uh, have such a good track record? And someone who's not a 
Christian or someone who's not a theist. They can't is, say because God made the world this way. Yeah, they cannot say, or, or as uh, someone like uh, Sir Isaac Newton and, uh, and others thought, I'm thinking God's thoughts after him. Right. And, this is, and Yeah, this is the mind of God that we're, we're exploring. Yeah. So, so we would argue that from a scriptural, biblical understanding of, of, of God and the world that he created, we're able to do these various disciplines. Right. right. So, so I think that that's a fairly easy uh, arena in which people can say, okay, I get it. It's a little more challenging in the area of, of biblical counseling because so much of biblical counseling is discipleship. Yeah, and, and so, much, so much of it has to do with the care and cure of the soul. And so uh, numbers and planets uh, and plumbing aren't made in the image and likeness of God. But you are, yeah. and I am. And these people that are broken with depression or panic attacks, or they are. So this is where I believe that theology and scripture become more important the more we enter that arena of beings made in the very image and likeness of God. And so the Bible and good theology are in fact, I believe, more important in psychology mm -hmm. than they are in physics or mathematics. Or plumbing. Or plumbing. Yeah. And yet at the same time, the way that John Frame, the way that Wayne Grudem defines sufficiency is God has given us in the Bible all the divine words we need for whatever. So then the, the, the controversy here has been that, um, my opinion anyway, is that some of my brethren who I really do love, they're my friends, I actually love biblical counsel, I love the way they counsel. But one of the differences is the way that they define sufficiency really comes down to exclusivity of Scripture. Mm -hmm. I don't really think anybody follows that because personal experience and common sense are endemic to any counseling model. Um, on the other hand, uh, I do think that the need within the world of Christian counseling, especially within biblical counseling, is let's talk with theologians again about what sufficiency means and doesn't mean. And certainly sufficiency is applied in all the other disciplines of applied theology, admissions, preaching, uh, hermeneutics, uh, Christian education, Christian philosophy and apologetics, and all these other domains of applied theology, they buy into the sufficiency of Scripture. But they don't seem to have the struggles that we've had within the world of Christian counseling in how to interface with the um, secular disciplines that are right next, next door to us. We have been talking with Dr. Sam Williams. Uh, Dr. Williams is a senior professor of counseling, uh, biblical counseling at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, this is uh, the Christ and Culture podcast. My name is Ken Keefley, hoping you have a good day. <laughs>